you, Pastor Randy. Uh, before the kids are dismissed, let me just give a, a brief update on uh, Pastor Chuck. Uh, he was here, actually, for the first service, so praise, praise God for that. He's doing better and has begun work on his uh, sermon for next week, so Lord willing, he will be able to be back in the pulpit, so you can pray for that. Uh, he also, I think uh, Todd mentioned last week, he was waiting on some medication and uh, new treatment, and that will start tomorrow, so you can pray for that as well. All the insurance difficulties were, were taken care of, so uh, praise God. Uh, kids, you can be dismissed to the Gospel Project, so up through fifth grade, you can go ahead and head on out. Jared, you're not a fifth grader, but sometimes you act like one, right? All right, um, so we are back in series in the book of John. Last week we took a break as we celebrated Easter. We were in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. And so let me just recap where we are. You can go ahead and turn to John 17 uh, if you have a, a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you, and it's on page 527 of that Bible. You can take that home with you if you don't have one. Uh, John 17. So we are in a section of the book of John that we just titled Final Words. So these are the final words of Jesus to his disciples and, and really to us. So John 13 through 16, we've seen a lot of different things uh, that Jesus has shared, including uh, he's washed the disciples' feet. He also sent Judas, the betrayer, away and uh, did the last of his I am statements. He said, I am the true vine. Talk about he is the true vine, we are the branches, and talk about abiding in Christ. He uh, said multiple times that he is going away, and yet the Holy Spirit is coming. So we've, we've heard a lot of teaching from Jesus up to this point. And we come to John 17, which I think is really just the culmination of of all of these things. So as we, before we read that, that passage, let me just ask you to think about the best relationship you've ever had. That might be a current relationship that you're in, it might be something from your past, it might be a romantic relationship or a family relationship, it might be just a friendship that you've had or with a coworker. Uh, so whatever that is, think about that for a moment. And what, what are some characteristics that marked that relationship? about that. What are some characteristics that mark that best relationship you've ever had? And I would ask, is that relationship ongoing? Is it still, still last? Is it still happening as of today? And if it is, has it always been good? Or has it had ups and downs? And think about also the ideal relationship. What's, what's an ideal relationship? What are some characteristics that would mark an ideal relationship? And is an ideal relationship even possible? Is it, is it even possible in the world we live in to have an ideal relationship? Well, today we're going to see just a small glimpse into the perfect relationship. And Lynn Hardy, come on up here. Uh, Lynn is going to read John 17 for us. Uh, Lynn, you will probably recognize his friendly face and that of Kathy. Uh, they are greeters and often greet the members and guests. So, Lynn, please. John 17, 1 through 26. When Jesus had spoken these things, <clears throat> sorry, let me start again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, 
since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom he you have given him and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now father I glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world even existed I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world yours they are yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word now they know that everything that you have given me is from you for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me I am praying for them I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me for they are yours all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them and I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you Holy Father keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one while I was with them I kept them in your name which you have given me I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves I have given them your word and the word has <clears throat> and the world has hated them before they are because they are not of this world just as I am not of this world I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one they are not of this world just as I am not of the world sanctify them in truth your word is truth and as you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one I in them you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I love as you loved me father I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me 
because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So this is called the High Priestly Prayer. Most of your Bibles at the, the header, the introduction will say this is the High Priestly Prayer. And Jesus makes no mention of high priests or anything like that in that. So why is it called the High Priestly Prayer? Well, if you remember, those of you that know the Old Testament, you remember the high priest, what was his job? The highest office, uh, highest priestly office in Israel his job was to take the animals and sacrifice them on behalf of the people so that the sins of the people would be placed on the animal and the animal's blood would be covering over the sins of the people so that the people might have a right relationship with God. So before the high priest would do that, he would often say a prayer to the people to, to pray before God for the people on their behalf. And so what is Jesus about to do? He's about to go to the cross. He's not going to sacrifice an animal. He is going to be the ultimate sacrifice. He is sacrificing himself. And our sins that are placed on him, us, us who believe in him, are, are not just going to be covered over. They're going to be wiped away. They're going to be completely taken care of by his, his blood. So that is why this is called the high priestly prayer. Jesus is offering a prayer as he is headed towards the cross. So, with that in mind, look again at verse 1. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. But here we see uh, this, this word, hour. We've heard this multiple times before. The hour has finally come. It's finally here. Jesus had used this, this term. In fact, he had said, My hour has not yet come several times earlier in John. He said that in John 2.14, John 7.30, and 8.20. But his hour is here now. So what, what does it mean? What does it mean that, it, that the hour has come? Well, if we look back at John 12, we see an explanation of that. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. His hour had come, the hour of his death, and that last verse there just a reference to the way he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up on the cross, and because of his death, all might have the chance to have life in him. So the hour has finally come for Jesus to make atonement for the sins of the world. And before that, he, he offers up this prayer. So I think if you look closely at this prayer, you're not going to see any, any new material, any new things that Jesus is sharing with us. This is really, I think, just a summary 
of what he's talked about to the disciples in John 13 through 16, and, and really through the whole book of John. So there's nothing really new here. It's just a summary of what he's already taught. The thing is actually pretty cool that the things that he's praying for are the things that he's already taught the disciples and already talked about with them. So we've titled this section of our sermon, or of, of the book of John, Final Words. So these are, in effect, the final words that Jesus speaks to the disciples and, in effect, to us. So I would ask, what, what would you pray for if you knew that your death was coming? If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, what would you pray for? Even beyond that, if you knew that you were going to die a horrible death tomorrow, what would you pray for? Even beyond that, if you knew you were going to die a horrible death, you'd not done anything wrong. In fact, you were going to die for the people who, who claim to love you. You're going to die for their sins. You're going to die for your enemies. What would you pray for? Well, what I, what I think we see here in this passage, in this prayer, is just it's really a theological feast of a meal, of a prayer. It's very rich, very deep this prayer that Jesus did. And it's really amazing that the disciples get to eavesdrop on this and get to hear what Jesus prays. And it's amazing that we, too, get to hear what Jesus prays. So I want us to see two things in this prayer that will hopefully help us to know and to love God more. The, the first thing that I want us to see is I want us to see the type of relationship that the Father and the Son share. So did you, when, when Lynn was reading, did you sense the longing of Jesus, the longing to return to the Father, the longing to return to heaven, to his glory. We just celebrated Easter, but I want us to think about Christmas for just a moment. Let's not forget that Jesus had, <clears throat> Jesus had the ideal setup. He was perfectly worshipped, rightly worshipped, rightly honored in heaven, and yet he chose to humble himself and become a baby in a manger, come to us. He chose to leave now, here he is, he's longing to return to the Father. I think when we look at it from that perspective, doesn't it make what Jesus did for us, doesn't it make it that much sweeter to realize that Jesus left? Safety, security, perfectly right, honoring and worshiping of him just for us. To put this in a different perspective, when I'm resting in my chair after a, a long, hard day at work, and like you, every day is long Right? So I, I go home, I sit in my chair, and the dog barks wanting to be let out. And I don't even want to get up to let the dog out, or the dog out. That, that's why we had kids, to take care of the dog. So I ask one of my kids to take the dog out, because I don't want to do it. But even worse than that, I often won't even get up to serve my wife when I'm sitting down. And yet, here is Jesus. And I don't think I will ever get over this. Jesus left a place perfect comfort, perfect worship, right worship, where he was glorified. And yet he chose to come, to become a man who would be spit on and who would be killed by his enemies. That's amazing, is it, is it not, when we think about what he did for us, what love he has for us. So notice also, he, he longs to return home, but he, he longs, uh, or he speaks of the Father in a very loving very, very reverential way, very uh, respectful, a sense of affection in the way that he speaks about the Father. Now, have you ever heard someone say that the God of the Old Testament, the 
father is the, he's the mean one. He's the bad one. He's the angry one. Have you ever heard that? Or maybe you've thought that yourself. And that Jesus, or the God of the New Testament, is the fun one. He's uh, the one who uh, is loving. He's all love and all peace and all happiness and all of that. Well, the way that Jesus talks about his father here just completely puts that idea on its head, doesn't it? He speaks so kindly of him. He loves, he honors, and he glorifies him. The way that he speaks of him, doesn't that make you desire a relationship like that? Don't you wish you had somebody who would talk that way about you? Don't you wish you had that kind of relationship as well? But yeah, what is, what is Jesus most concerned about? What does he want in this prayer? Well, he wants to glorify his Father. And he wants what he and the Father deserve, and that's to be, to be glorified. So what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify? Well, to glorify someone is to exalt them put them in their proper place, to give them their due, or to give them their honor, put them in the place of respect that they really, really deserve. And so when we talk about glorifying God, we're talking about glorifying the creator of the universe, the one who sustains everything, the one above whom there is no other, the one who deserves all praise and all glory. So Jesus wants a good thing. He wants to glorify the Father. He wants the Father to have the glory that he deserves. But he also wants a good thing in that he wants to glorify himself. He wants to glorify himself. And did you notice, which is totally different, if I was going to die tomorrow, I'd be praying a whole lot of things for myself. But the only thing that Jesus prays for himself is that he would be glorified. It's the only thing he asks for himself, to glorify me. Now, is that selfish? Is that self-centered, that he is wanting to be glorified? No, of course not, because he is God also. He is an equal with the Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all equal. The omnipotent, all-knowing, all-seeing creator, the sustainer of all things. So it is good and right for him to want to be glorified. And he was rightly worshipped in heaven, and he wants rightly to have what he had before. Now let me say also that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this passage. But of course the Holy Spirit deserves all of these things as well. The Holy Spirit has this type of relationship with the Father and with the Son. Jesus spoke about the Holy Spirit in chapters 15 and 16. But we see something beautiful in this relationship that the Father and the Son have. While we don't see everything about what, what their relationship is like in eternity, we see a glimpse here of, of the way they interact with each other as they're interacting with, with creation. And what do we see in this relationship? see that they want to glorify each other. We see that in verse 1. He says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Uh, I often think that when people talk about themselves in the third person, it's, it's kind of arrogant. That's what Jesus is doing here. But let me just point out that uh, this has been going on for thousands of years, right? People talk about themselves in, in the third person. But the reason Jesus is doing this is because I think he realizes that his place as Son of the Most High, as the King, is deserving of glory. And so he's talking about his place and his position. I, the Son deserves to be glorified. And that's what he's pointing out here. We see the glory come up, glory come up again in verse 4 and 5. I glorified you, and now glorify me. Then in verses 22 and 24 and 26, I desire that they see my glory that you 
you have given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. So the, the Father and the Son are not glory hawks. They don't want the glory all to themselves. The Father doesn't want the glory all to himself. The Son doesn't want the glory all to himself. We've seen the Son saying this over and over in this passage. In John, uh, John chapter 12, the one that we just read a moment ago, we saw that the Father said, I will glorify the Son. So the Father talks about glorifying the Son. Also think back to the baptism, Jesus' baptism and his transfiguration. It talks about glorifying the Son. So the Father wants the Son to be glorified as well. They have a mutually loving and glorifying relationship, and they deserve that. They deserve all of the glory. But we also see something of the roles that the Father and the Son have within themselves. So theirs is not a relationship of power grabs or jealousy. They're not jealous of each other. They're not grabbing power. Rather, it's mutual submission, love, and affection. And we see that in other places in Scripture, but we see that most profoundly here as we get a glimpse of their relationship. So let me show you just a, a couple of the ways that we see the different roles that the Father and the Son have, and the way that plays out. So first we see that the Father gives the Son authority. In verse 2 he says, You have given him... Jesus speaking in the third person again. You've given Jesus, you've given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. We see something of that in other places in this passage. Jesus, or Father, rather, is the one who is in charge. He's the one who's calling the shots. He's the one with a plan. He's the one who, who sets everything in motion. And if that is uh, puzzling to you or offensive to you that, that Jesus is not the one with the plan. He is the one that we talk about a lot. We talk about Jesus a lot. We just worshiped him and he was the focal point of Easter. And yet he's not the one who is the authority here. If that puzzles you, if that is offensive to you, let's hold that thought because we'll talk about that in just a moment. Yet another way that we see the authority of the Father is the Father is the one who sent the Son. The Father is the one that sends the Son. We see that in verse 3, verse 18. Verse 21, 24, 25, we see it twice that Jesus mentions it in verse 8. He says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Further, the Father also gives his people, he gives the believers to the Son. We see that in verse 9, 10, and 24. Verse, verse 6 reads, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So another way to say this is that the Son glorified the Father's name to the Father's people. So think about that for a moment. We are the Father's people, and we are the Son's people. Isn't that beautiful to know that we are both? We are, we are the Father's and the Son's unity there. We are the Father's people. We are the Son's people. It says in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. Even more to the point of the authority of the Father is that, is that when, when someone, especially in the ancient world, maybe somewhat today, but especially in the ancient world, when you give someone your name, you are giving them your reputation. You're giving them your wealth. You're giving them your, your power and your authority. And we see that here in verse 11. You can see the intimacy that Jesus has with Father. He doesn't call him Father. He calls him Holy Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me. 
that they may be one, even as we are one. There's more examples of this, but let's just finish with just one more. The Father gives the Son words to speak. It's the Son that is speaking the Father's words. See that in verse 14, and then in verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. Friends, the Father is the authority in this relationship. But do we see in any way, shape, or form any hint of resentment or bitterness or frustration in Jesus, either here or in any other part of Scripture, if that's the case? No, we don't see that at all. So don't miss this point. Authority is good and right and healthy when it's in the right hands, when it's, when it's wielded by the right person. So we see absolutely no hint of resentment in Jesus. No hint of bitterness, no animosity, no frustration even. In fact, we see the exact opposite of this. He loves the Father. He loves the Father deeply, and he knows that the Father loves him. Verse 23 says, So that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made, made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So we, we talked earlier about even our ideal relationships, even the best of relationships don't last, ours don't. But this, theirs is an eternal relationship from the foundation of the world. Eternal. And Jesus knows the Father, and he loves the Father, and he knows that the Father loves him as well. And in response to that love, the Son protects what belongs to the Father. He prays for the protection of the Father's people. And not only that, he also feels the freedom to ask the Father to glorify him. So you wouldn't ask someone to glorify you if you didn't feel that freedom, if you didn't feel like that authority, if that Father was a good uh, authority. So this is a truly loving, mutual, giving relationship that the Father and the Son have. And finally, I want us to see the unity that they have. Verse 21, he says, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me. You see the love and the oneness. There's such unity there that they are in each other. They're in What's more, Jesus wants to return to the Father. He longs to return to the Father. In verse 11, he says he's coming to the Father. He longs to return home. Now, is, is this crazy to you, to think of the different roles and the submission that Jesus shows to his Father? Just as I said earlier, we exalt Jesus. We, we just rightly celebrated and put Jesus as the focal point of Easter just last week. He should be. He should be the focal point. And yet, what is Jesus doing repeatedly in this passage? He's pointing back to the Father. He's saying, glorify, look at the Father. Look at him. Glorify him. He is the one that should be glorified. 
So let me make this a little bit more personal for you. Are you in a relationship in which you wish the tables were turned and you wish that you were the one who is in charge? Are you discontent with your role in life? Maybe you hate the word submission or you hate the word authority. Let me be clear, I'm not referring to a type of relationship that's abusive or that's ungodly or unhealthy. But friends, what a difference it would make if we had one bit of the view of authority view of submission that Jesus has in this regard. What would, what would happen if we realized that submission in and of itself is not a bad thing? I encourage you to grab a friend, talk with someone in your GC, and talk that over with them, particularly if you struggle with that. And of course, some of you would say, Jesus is, uh, it's easy for Jesus. He's submitting to the God of the universe. He's submitting to the Father who is holy and right and good. There's nothing bad in him. Of course, that's, that's true. But Jesus is the God of the universe as well. He is the equal. He, he has no need to submit. He's the equal of God the Father, the equal of, of the Holy Spirit. There's no reason for him to submit. And yet he does so willingly. He humbles himself, even to the point of coming to us, coming and dying on the cross. So this is the perfect relationship, father and son. Why do we look to other relationships as the source of perfection? Why do we set up celebrities? I wish I had the relationship that so-and-so had. I wish I had the friendship that so-and-so had. We ought to be looking to the perfect relationship, the relationship that the Father and the Son have, this perfectly, uh, mutually uh, submitting, uh, glorious relationship that they have. We all have warped and difficult relationships. Every one of us, none of us have a perfect, has even one perfect So isn't it a comfort to us as a believer that this is what we're headed towards? Someday, when we are in heaven, we will have this type of relationship where there is no difficulty, no pain, no struggle. There's that kind of relationship waiting for us. But until then, this is the relationship that we should model our earthly relationships after. I think think what Jesus shares about his relationship with the Father is just amazing. It's a feast for us to look at and have a glimpse of that relationship that the Father and the Son have. But the second thing that I want to see is that Jesus prays for something else in this passage. He prays for us. I want us to see what he prays, what he's chosen to pray for us. Before we do that, I think maybe it's interesting to think about what, what I would wish, what we would wish that he would pray for there's a whole list of things that I would selfishly have wanted Jesus to pray for. So uh, this is not an exhaustive list, but let me just talk about a couple of them. I, I would have wanted Jesus to pray that I wouldn't suffer. But Jesus knows the world is marred by sin. That's why he came to rescue us. That's why he's coming again to rid the world finally and forever of evil and suffering and pain. So he's coming back to do that. But if Jesus didn't pray that we wouldn't suffer, Perhaps we shouldn't focus, perhaps I shouldn't focus so much on it. Perhaps we shouldn't look to avoid interacting with the world or interacting with the world in such ways that cause us, perhaps, to suffer. Jesus didn't pray that we would be wealthy. And since that's true, perhaps we shouldn't spend so much time thinking about how we would spend the lottery if we get rich or uh, looking at our retirement portfolio or thinking about the next get-rich business 
how we can spend that next dollar. Maybe we shouldn't spend so much time thinking about that. I might have wished that Jesus would pray for uh, or would have sought God to ask God to pray for me that I would be healthy. And that he easily could have done that. He could have said, Father, protect my people and keep them in good health, or something, I'm sure, far more eloquent than that. He could have said something like that. So why do we often get so frustrated or angry with God when our health fails? Jesus didn't pray that we'd be comfortable, or that we'd get enough sleep, or even that we would have enough eat. He didn't pray that we would have all of our perceived needs met. So don't misunderstand. God, God loves us, and he's concerned about those things. But he did not choose to pray for those things in his last words last period and choose to pray for those things. So what does it say that the things he prayed for are so different than the things that I would have wished that he would pray for? Remember, these are his final words to us, to his chosen people. He longs to return home to his father, but he's also looking ahead to the, the joy of redeeming us, redeeming his bride. So what did he pray for us, for believers? Well, one way I think that we ought to look at this is to remember that it's, it's just as important to focus on what Jesus saved us for as it is to focus on what Jesus saved us from. And he saved us from sin and death and eternal separation from God. But what did, what did he save us for? Why did he save us? Well, a few minutes ago, I asked about ideal relationships. And I, I do a fair bit of marriage counseling. And... There's no end to the types of conflicts and difficulties and struggles that, that uh, happen in a marriage. But one of them is a lack of togetherness. The husband and the wife have different ideas. They have different dreams, different purposes, different uh, priorities for life. One wants the toilet paper to roll over, and one wants it to roll under. Oh, that's, that's silly. So lots more things happen in marriage. But even more so, how much more serious are the things that happen in the church? Silly, crazy, weird stuff that, that a church might argue over, that believers might argue over. Friends, is it a comfort to you that Jesus prayed for us, that we would have unity? We would have unity as believers, as the body of Christ. He prayed in verse 11, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's praying that for the disciples, but he actually prayed for that twice. This is the, I think it's doubly significant, this is the only thing that he prayed for twice, was unity. He said in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they may, uh, also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus desires us have unity. Why does he want us to have unity? It's so that we can glorify the Father, so that we can bring glory to God. So it's for us, but it's ultimately it's, it's so that we might bring glory to the Father by our unity, so that we would be different from the world. And union with Christ, abiding in Christ, having a relationship with Christ, leads to unity in Christ. Union with Christ leads to unity in the body of Christ. So the more that we are unified with Christ, the more we're going to have unity in the body of Christ. 
See too that he prays for joy in verse 13. Uh, think back, I, I hope that one of the things when I talked about an ideal relationship that you thought of was joy. Joy is, is often a central character, uh, characteristic of, of the best relationships. So he prays for joy. And joy is contentment with your circumstances and the one who puts you in those circumstances. Joy is hope in something outside of yourself. And Jesus prayed that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And Jesus, on, on the look of it, uh, Jesus would not, you would not have thought that Jesus would have a joyful life. He did not have an easy life. And yet, he, even here in his darkest hour, he's praying that the disciples, praying that we would have the type of joy that he has, fully trusting and hoping in his Father. Why does he want that? wants that so that we would glorify the Father, so that we would exalt the Father and put him in his proper place. He prays that we would have protection, but not protection from suffering, like I mentioned earlier. He prays that we'd have protection from the evil one. He prays that we would be a people who are marked by truth. So sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And nothing will destroy a relationship faster than lies he wants us to be bathed in the truth. How did Jesus respond when he was asked a question? Most of the time, did he not answer with scripture? He wants us to be bathed in the truth and know the word of God so that, so that we are marked as a different people and so that ultimately we'd be protected from the evil one and so that he would be glorified, so the Father would be glorified. Jesus wants our lives to be a testimony to the world. Verse 23 says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. And our lives are to be a testimony to our great God. We're to carry the good news of Christ. Why is that? Well, verse 20, Jesus says that he's not just asking or praying for those who are already believers in but also for those who will, who will believe, who will eventually believe in me through the word. And that's going to happen, that as we are unified with Christ, his word becomes our word. The more unified we are with Christ, his word becomes our word, and then we carry that and share that with the people around us. And that's all, again, to the glory of the Father. And finally, Jesus wants us to see God. He said often that the way we see God is by seeing him seen him, you've seen the Father. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. So he wants us to see God and to know him, so that we would know his love, and so that we'd be marked by him. Verse 26 says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So folks, what I, what I find amazing in this is all the things that Jesus prayed for, for us, for joy, for protection, from the evil one, for unity, these are all things that glorify the Father. These are all things that, that are marks of him, that, that characterize that, that he exemplified in his time here on earth. And so he wants us to have these things so that we will glorify the Father. 
Jesus wants us to share in that relationship that the Father and the Son have. When we're marked by these things, when we're marked by the things that he prayed for, then we will glorify the Father. So Jesus, in his final words to us, prayed that the Father would be glorified, and then he prayed for us so that we too might glorify the Father. So what does Jesus want? Well, Jesus wants God, Jesus wants himself to be glorified, and he wants you to have a relationship with him so that we too can be glorified in God. So I asked earlier what, uh, or I said earlier, what I would have wished that God or that Jesus would have prayed for. What would you wish that Jesus would have prayed for for you? Is it any different? mind, maybe you're not as selfish as I am. Maybe you have different selfish things that you would pray for. But is your life marked by the things that Jesus actually did pray for? Or is your life marked by the things that you would have wanted Jesus to pray for? In other words, is your life one that, that is marked by glorifying God and putting God at the center of everything? Or is your life marked by yourself being at the center? Your financial decisions are based not on what God wants, but on meeting your own needs. The way you spend your time, the way you treat other people, is not marked by what God wants, but marked by what you want. We began this morning talking about ideal relationships. And wouldn't you say that the Father and the Son have an ideal relationship? Wouldn't you like to have that kind of relationship? When we enter into relationships, isn't there at least some small part of us that is longing for this kind of relationship that wants someone to treat us this way? Don't, don't we have that missing piece of us that we want that too? If you're already a believer in Christ, then what's keeping you from that? What is it that's keeping you from putting Jesus at the center and glorifying God? Is it one of the things that I mentioned earlier? Or is it something else? But is the love of yourself a higher priority than the creator who loves you and gave everything up for you? And if you're not yet a believer, isn't a relationship with God what you've really been searching for? Jesus put you in his place. He gave you everything. And he took, he took your place. He took your sin. Jesus is inviting you. He did that so that he can invite you into a relationship with the Father, with himself. That's fulfilling, that's life-giving, where we are rightly glorifying the Father. That's what Jesus wants. <clears throat>